As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Soccer Show and our look ahead to the big one this weekend, the European Championships final between England and Germany at a full capacity Wembley Stadium. Bronze and mead sound like medieval bartering items, but it turns out they're essential goal-scoring personnel when it comes to putting the Swedes <laughs> to the sword. Meanwhile, France's tour of rubbish English cities ended in Milton Keynes on Wednesday when they suffered a malady because Germany had a pretty good pop. Yeah, like that one. My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today is a man whose prediction of an England-Sweden tense stalemate thankfully didn't quite come to pass. Taylor Rockwell, hello. Hello. Yeah, not even a little bit. It started exciting and and pretty back and forth. Sweden kind of dominant. Then England became very much dominant. At no point was it boring and a stalemate. So I may have gotten that one wrong just a little bit. I sat down in my father-in-law's home to watch this game, Taylor, and sort of braced everyone in the room saying, you know, this might be the most entertaining game. This might be a deadlock. And then fireworks. I was very happy yeah. it didn't turn out that way, Tay-Tay. Yeah, and then Sweden hit the bar in like the first minute, and it was sort of uh, pretty exciting. Pretty yeah. exciting, that yeah. game. Ryan, for you, how was it watching that game with the Milton Keynes uh, sign in the background for the entirety? <laughs> I really did think about you multiple times in this game as to whether or not that was making your blood pressure slowly increase. It was unpleasant in the extreme. <laughs> That's all I have to say about that matter. Yeah. Let's not mention those two words anymore, I should say, Tay-Tay. But we will talk much, much more about that game in that dreadful place. Joining us, Taylor, a man who's currently selecting which of the Germany shirts from his shirt vault he'll be wearing this weekend. Graham Ruthen, have you made your selection? I have. I made it in advance because you'll remember I predicted that it would be an England-Germany final at Wembley on Sunday. So I've already laid it out. I've ironed it. It's all ready to go on Sunday. Very good indeed. I I imagine you have a vault like Scrooge McDuck and you dive into the shirts every morning. Is that how you do it? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's a standard morning routine for me. Check Twitter in my bed, get out of bed, just dive into the pit of shirts below my bed. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful stuff. Joining us, Graham, a man who is to analysis what Alessio Russo is to casual backheeled nutmeg goals. Joe Lowry, hello. Oh, that goal was so, so good. The game was incredibly fun, too, and we'll talk more about that later. Ryan, I love the idea of you at your in-laws' house just sort of talking about it and and 
reverse hyping this game up as, oh, it's going to be dull, it's going to be dreary. We kind of expect an even game that might not be much. And then four goals later, you're in-laws sort of thinking, so wait, this guy talks about soccer for a living? (laughs) What? I I don't get that. See, that's why I don't talk about soccer with anyone um, so that I I can't be wrong. And I'm only wrong on this show, and I very much was wrong about France versus Germany. So that's one point to you, Graham, and minus like eight points for Ryan for talking to his in-laws. Yeah, indeed. Joe, they've known for much longer than you and the rest of the guys have that I don't know what I'm talking about. So they're very much used to that fact. So um, no no, no changes there. But it was wonderful to sit down, watch both semifinals uh, in this house. Uh, And very well received they both were, as they should be. Um, I was reading on the BBC, guys, that if uh, England does win the Euros, the British government has ruled out making a public holiday in celebration. And we should note that after Euro 2020, the British government did not rule out making a public holiday in celebration should England have won that game, which they evidently did not. Um, TSS aren't taking any days off either, listeners. So don't worry about that one. But my question for you, uh, to, to the American contingent, Tete and Joe, if the US won the World Cup, do you think there would be an actual public holiday? Taylor, what do you think? No, I don't think no so. Shot. Sadly, <laughs> no I think there shot. should be. Yeah, I, I I wish there were. I have long been of the opinion that any president who moved a sort of national holiday to the day after the Super Bowl would be elected pretty much unanimously. Uh, that seems like a, a pretty <laughs> slam dunk decision. And yeah, I think winning a World Cup or I guess the U.S. winning the Euros is slightly less of a reality. But I think, yeah, that, that would that would always be good. Let's do a, a giant nationwide tour starting on one coast, heading to the other one. And let's just close down the country I- the whole time for that. I guess effectively there would be a national holiday this year if the US true. men's team won the World Cup. It would just be Christmas Day. Yep. <laughs> That's true. That's very true. And they're having the day off before the England-USA game, I suppose. So there is that as well. <laughs> Joe, what do you think? Would the, pub- the Republic of Arizona declare a public holiday? I mean, I think we can make that happen. Arizona does like to get a little wild sometimes. So I'm here for it. It doesn't feel all that likely US-wide, but in Arizona, Ryan, why not, right? Right. Ryan, did Italy have a public holiday after they won the Euros last year, the men's Euros? They have public holidays all the gosh darn ah, time, set you up. They love it. <laughs> do, you know, do you know the, the weird thing about Italian public holidays is they happen on a specific date and not a day. So if it falls on a Sunday, it's on a Sunday. That's uh, quite <laughs> annoying, uh, I, I found uh, from living in Italy. Um, James, before we get to the action, we have some big transfer news to discuss. One of us has made a huge transfer to a different home. Congratulations, Taylor Rockwell. Thank you. Yeah, we're very excited. We're moving this weekend. Uh, we closed on our house uh, this morning, and we have a yard. We we finally have a yard that's not uh, like paved and bricks, and our daughter can run around, and our dogs can run around. And we've had our dogs for as long as we have. They've never had a yard. We're very, very excited for them to have grass to be able to run around, and maybe we have, get to walk them slightly less as a result. Have you decorated all of our rooms yet? <laughs> I'm upstairs, <laughs> right? I only sleep on the second floor of places, so that's yeah. I lost. assume we're gonna leave the master vacant because that's wh- that's where Joe will will obviously stay. Uh, Ryan, I think, goes in with the kids' room, and then Graham is somewhere out back in in the bog behind the house. We agreed on that. <laughs> sure, you can be in the treehouse, Graham, if you want. It just felt like it felt like more oh, your sort of your speed. <laughs> I'll take the treehouse. I'm okay. I'm still reeling from the revelation that Joe only sleeps in the second floors of, of properties. After learning yesterday that, that he watches uh, soccer <laughs> horizontal flat on the floor, I feel like I'm learning more about you, Mr. Lowry. You really are. You really are. Graham, if you're nice to me, I'll let you come sleep inside um, on the on the floor of my room so you can get away from the bog every once in a while, maybe like once a week or so. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm always here to enlighten with more details about Joe, my Thank life. you, Joe. Joe, are you worried about floods or something? Because I've got news for you. In Arizona, I ain't going to flood anywhere. <laughs> yeah, I don't actually sleep 
sleep on the second floor of places. I mean, I'm not opposed to it, but in this case, it just felt right. I've seen a picture of the outside of the Rockwell's new home, and I just, I'm drawn to the second floor. So that's my demand. If you're nice to me, I'll let you sleep inside is something that Joe just said. Graham, is that also something your wife said in her wedding vows? (laughs) <laughs> uh yes yes that was in there among other things it was a short it was a short a short speech short vows but that was in there yes i might let you inside sometimes to escape the bog is exactly what she said yeah it, graham will be in uh your in your bog taylor as yeah. it were but he will have a shirt vault in your home as well be uh be aware yeah, I mean that's that's the first part of construction is Graham's shirt vault. It's it's like the world seed vault where if something catastrophic happens, at least we'll have all the seeds to regrow the plants. Uh, if something <laughs> horrific happens and we lose a record of all the jerseys of all the clubs in the world, we will have Graham's jersey vault to sustain us. All right, gonna try and steer this back to soccer now. England four, Sweden nil at Bramble Lane on Tuesday night. England's women uh, are in the first final since two thousand nine. Beth Mead, Lucy Bronze, Alessio Russo with that back heel nutmeg we talked about, and Frank Kirby with a lovely old chip to round it off as well. Uh, a nice peak audience of nine point three million viewers in the UK, the second highest women's game uh, viewership. Taylor, would you like to guess the highest one um, that happened? It might have been in 2019. It might have been against a certain country that England invented. <laughs> that England invented. Uh, I wish I had England a, a claims clever invented retort. all the countries, to be fair. Of course. <laughs> yes, I will forever love that map of countries that England hasn't invaded versus the ones that they have. Uh, I'm going to assume it was the World Cup final in 2019. It was the England-USA game. Semi-final, right? Semi-final, yes. It was the semi-final, uh, which had 11.7. I'd expect that uh, record might be smashed this Sunday. and more. Who won that that game, Ryan, by the way? I don't know. Do you remember? No, I don't remember. So Sweden created (laughs) quite a lot of chances in the opening half hour, Joe. Uh, What did you make of this game? It seemed like um, the way I sort of chatted about it on our group chat was it it was quite tense and even uh, in the first half. But England kind of opened up and started to get into a higher gear in the second half, quite obviously, because the goals came flooding in. I think that general narrative fits in this game, right? If we want to start there and work backwards, this this game, even though it was a lot more open and entertaining than, than Taylor, I know you especially had talked about when we, when we previewed these games, it was a lot more open, but it kind of still followed that same general tactical pattern that we'd also talked about on that show. This idea of Sweden being more comfortable when they're not having to be the protagonist. And I, I think that really played out in this match you saw just just seconds into this game just minutes into this game Sweden winning the ball high up not having to to create chances with their own attacking movement but letting England's possession and and turnovers off of that possession create chances for Sweden we saw that theme play out over and over again and and Blackstinius as that number nine was finding space on the break her movement I thought was brilliant inside the first 20-30 minutes she had a couple of nice moments in those earlier stages of this game her movement's really good on a, on a shot in the eighth minute, and then she gets a header. I believe it's a header uh, from a corner kick in the following sequence that goes off the woodwork. Sweden had good moments in these opening stages because they're so comfortable playing against the ball, or at least they were at the start. I think after that, England totally kicked it into high gear. They had some nice moments early on as well. But England started just breaking right through Sweden. Not every possession, but they had a lot of the ball for stages of this game. And I was really impressed by how good England's possession play was. Frankly, I I didn't expect it to be quite that sharp. I thought Sweden, if they sat in a 4-4-2 block, maybe a mid-block and pressed up occasionally, I thought they were fully capable of giving England some some tough times in this game. I guess they did for stretches 
But man, once we got into the latter stages of this match, it kind of felt like it was England carving through Sweden with a lot of good possession play. I really enjoyed watching England find their footing in this game, and I thought they were lovely to watch after they had sort of weathered a little bit of Sweden's storm early on. Just a fun game, a really good pace to it, some back-and-forth play. Sweden very much could have gone up earlier in this match. They didn't. That left the door open for England, and we got four, a lot of them, really good goals out of this game. I, I really enjoyed this one. I felt like, Joe, it almost felt like the microcosm of a whole tournament of a team within one game that England played there. Couldn't quite get into the rhythm at the start, a bit cagey at the start, and then sort of grew into things and got more and more confident as the game went on, which is kind of the flow you'd expect from a whole tournament. Yeah, I I think that's a really good analogy, Ryan. And it wouldn't surprise me at all if England used the momentum from this really big win. And and I think maybe for the last 60 minutes, a, a really strong performance. It wouldn't surprise me if we saw the final play out, and I know we'll talk about this later, if we saw the final play out as the latter stages of this game where England just kind of carry that momentum and really shine in the final. It's going to be difficult against Germany, who are pretty clearly a better team than Sweden right now, at least based off of this tournament. But Ryan, it, it honestly wouldn't shock me at all, which I know is, is like nails on the chalkboard to Graham's ears, but I, I think even he would go along with that too. How's it sounded to you, Graham? Yeah, unfortunately, I can kind of see that panning out. I, I did protect, predict England before the tournament as, as the winners, and I, I still think that they're probably going to win this this tournament. They the, the, the early 25 minutes of this game was probably the most interesting of the match to me, not just because Sweden were the better team in that <laughs> in that period, but sure. it was it was they were asking some new questions of England, and they were getting a lot of joy down down, down the left. Uh, Lucy Bronze has has been very important for England at this tournament, as is, I guess, natural for a player of her quality. But she does leave a lot of space in behind when she pushes up the pitch, which is often. And as a result of this, Millie Bright had this decision of whether to fill the gap out wide, come across and fill that space, or whether to stay where she was. And it felt like Sweden were very much... Um, they were kind of setting traps for England and, and England at that time it felt like they, they didn't really know how to deal with that and I don't think it was a particularly intelligent performance by England for much of the first half but then what happened was uh, it seemed like Wiegmann asked Leah Williamson she had she had initially been ste- informed to send diagonal passes into Beth Mead but that was that was creating, creating a bit of a disconnect, disconnect sorry, between the attack, attack and the rest of the, of the team but um, Williamson was then stepping into the midfield and she was then kind of breaking the lines with these passes into Fran Kirby and Fran Kirby was then able to turn and open up the England attack and that was how they created those moments of transition. So that was a bit of the game changer for me was how England's changed the way that they were playing out from the back. And then also, this might be stating the obvious, the, the first goal changes the game as well because England, uh, they they basically take their first real chance through, through Beth Mead, excellent finish. And then that just kind of creates more space for them to transition into, whereas Sweden then have to be the ones that are dictating the, dictating the game and, and imposing the, themselves on England. So between those that tactical shift that happened with Leah Williamson and then the first goal, that was where the, the pivot of the match happened for me. And, and sorry, Taylor, I know you haven't gotten a chance to jump in yet, but Graham, I, I want to go a little deeper on what you're talking about there with Leah Williamson in particular. I think that's a great spot by you. England in this game, because of how Sweden defended with their front two, kind of rotating back and forth to shadow Kira Walsh, England's number six in their 4-3-3 in possession. Sweden tried to block the passing lanes into Walsh. So England at first, I think, had a little trouble playing through midfield and trying to find the right moments to build through those central spaces. And Leah Williamson, I thought was, and and Graham, this goes along to your point, I thought she was pivotal 
finding passes and, and progressing the ball through midfield. And then after England started to get a little more comfortable, we saw White dropping down, which is not really her game as a number nine, right? She's she's more of a of a physical presence, a back to goal. She doesn't love to drop in. That's that's kind of more of Russo's game. And we did see some of that later on. But I thought Ellen White dropped in and, and created a, a numerical advantage in those central spaces. And England's number eights, Georgia Stanway, and, and then you also had Fran Kirby, I thought were brilliant with their movement in this game. On the whole, once England kind of had a chance to adjust, and Ryan, this goes back to something you said, once they had a chance to adjust, I thought their positioning and possession and their movement and their off-ball movement in particular, you have players running in behind, you have the eights moving up the the half spaces and dropping in uh, deeper and, and collecting the ball and progressing it. There was just so much quality possession played to England in this game, and a lot of that for me started in the back once they had a chance to problem solve a little bit. And then it wasn't like the floodgates totally opened, but but we saw a pretty steady stream of water trickling through the gates here. Yeah, and I think that it's it's really impressive to me. I agree with everything that's been said so far. I think it's just especially impressive from England, given that Sweden tried to throw some unexpected things at them. They have a shape change for this one. Uh, Hannah Glass starts at left back instead of right back. Sophia Jakobsen uh, makes her, I think, first start of the tournament, or at the very least wasn't expected to start, but there she is on the right wing. I think maybe trying to exploit Rachel Daly, which is something that Spain were able to do a couple different times. Uh, and I think they were like what you all have already talked about, just trying to disrupt passing lanes and basically letting the ball stay with people who maybe didn't want the ball as much as those who did. And from what I've read, it wasn't really Serena Wiegmann who made changes in game, at least in that first half. It was the players themselves who figured some things out, uh, realized, as Joe said, like Ellen White needed to be more involved through the middle just because that gave England more options centrally, but also gave them an overload so that then if Sweden adjusted, which they did and tried to crowd the middle, that left space out wide. And I think overall, what I would say is that if you're Germany watching this one and preparing for that final, I, I think you're not just nervous because it was 4-0 over Sweden, who have been very good in this tournament. You're nervous because Sweden did some things that made England uncomfortable, as we've already talked about. And, and it could have been a different game, but it wasn't. And then in the end, Sweden lose 4-0 because England are just that good. I don't know if Sweden really showed Germany a blueprint for how to beat England. I'm not sure anyone has really shown that yet, aside from Spain. And the answer there being be Spain, but also be better on the defensive side. Like, I don't know if anybody can do that. So I think England has to be feeling incredibly confident, not just for this win, not just for where they are in the tournament, but because I think there are vulnerabilities to Germany. I have a harder time finding obvious vulnerabilities when it comes to England. Yeah, that that's such a, a good sign for England if that is the case, Taylor, that it wasn't it, those directions didn't mm-hmm. come from Wiegmann and that was the, the players that figured that out because in a high-pressure environment, a, a semi-final a major tournament, a home major tournament as well. That's maybe the 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 perspective that Ryan and I can provide being over here. Everyone is talking about this tournament at the moment. It's on the, the main terrestrial channel, the BBC, so it's getting huge audiences. And so the women's team maybe have never had, the England women's team have maybe never had a spotlight as intense as this. So for them to have that clarity of thought in a game where it's not going really their way as it was in the first 30 minutes against a high-quality team that could feasibly beat them, and, to, and as I say, 
to have that clarity of thought just kind of shows how intelligent that they are as as a as a group of players and, and as a team. I think that's a, a really good sign ahead of the final. Graham, a question uh, for you and Ryan, since I think Ryan asked uh, the American contingent a question earlier. Ian Dark in the ESPN coverage was talking about how much this, like the country has gotten behind this team and how uh, you, you go to a pub and you hear people talking about the England women's team and they're saying that in very celeb- celebratory tones, which I understand. But at the same time, it, it seems kind of odd to me that it that didn't already exist. And I, I guess, the, like, my bigger question is just, like, is it the case that the country has sort of gotten behind this team in a way that they hadn't previously? Because I would say for the U.S., it's not as though the whole country shuts down when the U.S. women make the World Cup final. But I think there is sort of maybe because the U.S. has been so good for so long, there is an expe- expectation of, oh, they're in a World Cup. Well, then I'm going to watch. Oh, they're in the, they're the, in the Olympics. I'm going to watch that because we know they're going to be good. And it seems like that maybe hasn't been as much the case when it comes to England. I'll, I'll, I'll jump in, Taylor. I think um, Ian Dart mentioning a pub is key because something that's changed here, certainly in England, that I've never seen before for the women's game is there's a pub culture around it. Now people will go yeah. to the pub, it'll be on the big screens and people will be talking about it and that pub will be packed out. And that's never, in my experience, been the case for the women's game. And even anecdotally being here in my father-in-law's house, who's a massive soccer fan, watches every game he can, but never has really invested in the women's team, but has been all the way on this journey for this for this tournament as well. It's been really complimentary of the, the technicality and, and the skill on display as well. And I think there's been a real sea change in this country in terms of the way the women's game is is perceived. And I'll say, even, even when I was at college, which is, is embarrassingly long time ago, that it wasn't typical to watch a women's game, even... It, it just wasn't part of the, the zeitgeist. Is that fair to say, Graham? I think it's it's just come along yeah, massively. And, and it's really good to see. And a large part of that is obviously just due to the coverage. It used to be very difficult to find women's football on TV. And now it very much seems like if you put it in front of people's eyeballs, those eyeballs will be drawn to it. At the end of the day, it's just it's just football and people like to watch football. I was at, as I said, I was at a wedding uh, yesterday and um, sitting having the meal and we're, or just after the meal actually, and people are on their phones checking and I'm talking to a couple of guys around me about the, the Germany-France game that that is a complete sea change that has never uh, that's never happened to me before with the women's game so it's great and I think the, the BBC in particular in the UK deserve a lot of credit for pushing the women's game because they have the highlights on the Sunday night of the the the, the WSL the Women's Super League in, in the UK and they've put all these games every single one of these games of this tournament has been on either BBC One or BBC Two and I know maybe there's a, a different broadcast structure in the US, but if you put those games on those, either of those two channels, people are going to watch. You could put anything on those two channels and people will watch them. And they do. So the fact that the Euros is on there is, is, a, is a big, big deal. Yeah, it's it's very, very pleasing to see. Um, one more thing I was going to bring up about the game itself, uh, Graham, is the uh, Alessio Rosso backheel nutmeg. We've, we were treated to an all-time classic international goal there. Wonderful, wonderful stuff. But we have to have the conversation, don't we? about whether she starts or Evan White yeah. starts. What's what's going on there? So I think we do have to have the discussion. I fully expect that she will be on the bench on yep. Sunday because as we have covered a number of times, Serena Wiegmann does not like to change her starting lineup. England have played five games at this tournament. She's stuck with the same lineup for four of those games. The only one that she changed it for was the, the sort of dead rubber at the end of the group against Northern Ireland where she rotated some of our, our team. So I expect it will be, barring any injuries, of course, or any covid cases or anything like that i expect it will be the same lineup on on sunday but we do have to talk about the impact that alessio russo has had at this tournament she really couldn't have 
made any more of an impact with her appearances off the bench. She was brilliant against Northern Ireland and Spain. And once again, she makes an immediate impact as a sub in this game. And I, I mean immediate. Within 20 seconds of coming on, she's picked up the ball, she's carried it forward at pace, and then she sends a perfect cross to Lauren Hemp at the back post, who might might have scored. And she's just an absolute nuisance in and around the penalty box. Obviously, the highlight, as you mentioned there, Ryan, is, is the is the back heel finish, which is incredible through the through the goalkeeper's legs. But the, if you look at how Russo gets the the chance to perform that back heel, she has a shot. It's saved. There are then two Swedish defenders who, to me, look favourites to get to the ball first. But she somehow manages to get her body in the way and then opens up the space. And I think that kind of just illustrated what she brings to the England attack. As I say, she's just energy. She's a nuisance. She's physical, but she's also got pace and technical ability. And I don't think Ellen Ellen White has had the the best of tournaments. She is very effective at, at leading a press. We saw that in the... What game was it that she forced the mistake? Was that the Norway game where where she kind of uh, charged down the defender and and scored a goal from from that method? She's very good at that, but I think Russell has has undoubtedly been more effective with the game time that she's had. But then you have the question of whether that's the case because Russell's pace and physicality and qualities that she has is that more effective later in a game when maybe teams are tiring. So I I don't expect she'll come into the lineup, but she could still have a very big say on what happens on Sunday. I think it's Eddie Jones, the the England rugby manager, head coach. He he makes a point of he never talks about substitutes. He talks about finishers because as he sees it, the players that finish the match are just as important as the ones that start it. And he kind of has a picture in his mind of how the flow of a match is going to go um, over the course of a match. And I think Serena Wiegmann is kind of similar where just because Russo's on the bench and also Ella Toon, who's been very effective off the bench as well, just because they're on the bench doesn't mean that they are less important to the team, actually. She's got a plan on how that she's going to use them throughout the match. Yeah, and bear in mind, Graham, in this game, that Russo came on in the 57th minute. That's virtually getting a half, isn't it? I mean, that's a big impact there. Virtually is carrying a pretty heavy weight. That's <laughs> <laughs> carrying a 12-minute weight, right? <laughs> you know what I'm saying. It's not an 85th minute. Sure. Um, it's a good chunk. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Taylor, any more to say on this game before we move on? Just that I love Joe. And at one point, uh, <laughs> when Graham uh, was referring to Vigman, I thought he said, for our team, he said for her team. But for a moment, I thought you identified England as us. And I was shocked no, no. and a little bit appalled. But I'm glad. No, no. Not going that far. <laughs> All right, we're gonna uh, we're gonna preview, of course, the England Germany game very shortly. But first, after this break, we're gonna talk about Germany to France one. Back shortly. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. Let's talk about Wednesday evening's Euro 2022 semi-final in the place where we should never go. Germany 2, France 1. Joe, where do we start with this one? Probably with uh, the joint golden boot contender, Alexandria Pop, who is 
good at the soccer's. She is very good at the soccer. She was just a pain for France in this game and, and inflicted a lot of pain on them on her two goals in particular. But she is an incredible number nine up top, surveying space, timing her runs very, very well. And it's not just about her savviness of movement, which we saw on both goals. The first one in particular is is a brilliant bit of play from her. So it's Germany in possession. They're in the attacking half. It's Brand over to Hoot on, on the right side who crosses it in. And it's Pop who crashes in and scores that goal. I think the cross is actually meant for Magol, um, Germany's number 10. But Pop doesn't give up on the play. She cuts it right in front of her defender. And great finish with her left foot on, uh, with, a, with a first touch finish as well. And that's 1-0 to Germany in that moment. It was a great finish. But it's not just about her ability to see space, which I think is probably the most important thing. But what takes an, an elite goal scorer from what, what takes a goal scorer from being good uh, to, to great or to elite is also that extra bit of of athleticism as well. And we really saw that on the second goal. It's a 76th minute. France had equalized off of an own goal from from Germany's keeper, but a nice piece of play um, from from France and a nice shot. They equalized right before the the first half ended. So now we're in the second half and we're about 30 minutes in. And it's Alexander Pop again. It's, it's a cross from the right side. And Pop rises up and finishes. And, and fellas, she jumps so high, so high to finish this, this ball off with a header. She made it look easy. And I, I cannot believe how much hang time she got. No French defender steps to her until it's far too late. And she just dunks on the French back line. It was an incredible sequence. I, I really enjoyed both of these goals. They're two of the, the best goals I've seen scored by the same player in the same game in a really long time, both because of the vision, because of the timing, because of the ability to see space and move into that space, and then the, the quality mixed with the athleticism as well. I thought Pop was brilliant in this game. She's someone that can win Germany this final against England. The, the other main thing I noticed in this game, and maybe we saw it a little bit on a couple of these goals, is I thought Germany looked so much more energetic and, and capable and up for it in this game than France did. And that's kind of a, a cliche. It's not really intangible because you can measure how far players ran and moved and how fast they were moving. But France just looked tired. They were slow to react defensively, which gave Pop some really nice moments. And they were also sluggish in the attack. I think it was pretty clear in this game. They mentioned it on the broadcast, but Germany had two extra days of rest before this match. And I thought it really showed. I didn't think France could keep up with Germany in this game. They certainly keep up, couldn't keep up with Pop in this game. And on the whole... I thought it was pretty clear. It wasn't a, a miles better situation. I don't think that Germany was was just so much better than France in this one, but they certainly deserve this win, and I, I think it's it's very just that they yeah. got it. I thought France did drop off in, in the second half, but the first half was arguably maybe the best half of football of the whole tournament, I thought. I thought the quality, the level, the tempo, everything from that first half was just so high it was kind of sensory overload at times where you had the pressing from germany the the speed and transition from france the quick feet the the quick passing and in a lot of ways it was the match that we expected to be as i say with with the the high press from germany they tried to make it hard for france to play through them to get any sort of passing rhythm going they were they were close to the french players whenever they could be and we saw france with a lot of speed and they had joy getting in around the outside of the of the german defense and while France are, are generally a more individual team, there we go, team, than, uh, than Germany, I suspected that might be the thing that got Germany over the line in this match. But there was also some interesting tactical things from France as well. So when Germany had the ball, France were set up high, uh, they were set up high the pitch themselves with a, with a front line. And that basically put four across the pitch 
and then with two backing them up from midfield. And what that was doing was forcing Germany to play longer more often than they would have. And we saw that for the for the, the equaliser, where Germany have kind of no choice but to flip a, a, a half clearance, I would call it, into that central area where France were free to come at them again. And that's where Diani has the, has the shot that unfortunately ricochets in off the goalkeeper. But I, I did think that was kind of the, the trap that France were setting for Germany. So while there was a lot of high pressing and a lot of ta- good tactical stuff from Germany, as we've come to expect from them at this tournament, I thought France were also in the first half before they dropped off and also before some of the changes that Corinne yeah. Diacre made at halftime, which I felt didn't help France. But before that happened, I thought France were giving as good as they got with, with Germany. Yeah, I think those changes really did stand out to me in a negative way, and especially uh, compared to what Germany did. But I think Malar, I, I guess I understand if the idea was she was dropping too deep, she was too involved on the defensive side, on the build-out side. They wanted her to stretch that back line. They wanted her to keep in, or Germany honest. I can see why maybe you would make that change. And I like Bacha a lot. I think she brings a good chaos into that attack. But I also felt like these were sort of changes we've seen from France previously. So I have to imagine Germany had sort of game plan for them. But it was also uh, Gianni moved central, Baccia went wide, then uh, it's Matteo comes on, she comes on for Cascarino. So you've changed two of your front three, but I don't think they really changed the tactics all that much. Maybe a few little positional adjustments, but for the most part, it felt very similar to what we had been seeing, which to me, as the game went on, felt like they were sort of continuing to rely on that individuality to make something happen, that quick transition to attack to make something happen. And I think Germany, for their part, uh, Martina Vosteklenberg, the manager, made very smart substitutions and timed them well. And bringing off the Brits and Muggle, who I think are so important, I don't think Muggle had a very good game. Maybe that's just because all of the time she hit the deck uh, stand out to me. But I think to bring in two more central midfielders just gave them more control through the middle. And then those midfielders making aggressive runs forward and late arriving runs forward, I think also sort of threw off Germany quite a bit and, and led to some of that sort of chaos and disorganization that allowed, let's say, the pop second goal, but also other chances as well. And so I think Germany made, they kind of uh, kept their powder dry longer and then made, I think, smarter changes that helped them Mm -hmm. get more control of the game. I, I didn't understand the Diani change nah. at all in particular. Moving her centrally, as as you say, Basha is a, a, a brilliant player. Voted the, I believe she was voted the, the the best young player in the Champions League last season. So in terms of quality, not much of a drop off at, at all. Taking Mallard off, but moving Diani centrally, obviously her game is very much about creating those or making the most of those one-on-one opportunities. Yeah. We highlighted her before the match as someone who could play through Germany, which was always that was always likely that France were going to have to do that. So to then move her centrally, and she kind of faded out of the game after that change as well, it, it didn't make much sense to me. What they did against uh, the Netherlands in in the second half, and and I think if that had been a change where Malar comes off, on comes Bacha, Diana goes central, and then they immediately score a goal. It's sort of like, okay, that change worked out. But in the end, it's extra time. And it is Gianni who gets taken down, but it's a penalty. It's not necessarily that that change led to better attacking play. So I think even if it happened previously, I still don't think that necessarily makes it the smartest of decisions. I'm with you, Graham. I think there are other changes that might have benefited them a bit more. Well, and part of what I I felt like France struggled with in this game and that Germany did a good job of forcing them into in this game is is without Marie-Antoinette Cototo up top for France, they they lack a a number nine from what I've seen that is really capable of bringing others into the game, right? I I think when you look at Millard, she is, is capable of holding up play 
temporarily, but she doesn't really provide that stable presence in the nine spot that allows you to send runners off of her. And I think in this game, that would have gone a long way for France. France did have some good moments playing over the top. They had some good moments evading pressure too, but there were a couple of sequences with Millard holding up the ball and playing Diani in behind in particular. There was one in the 12th minute that was really nice. There were good moments like that, but too often it was France looking rushed in the attack to me. And, and by the time that they had already turned the ball over, the fullbacks hadn't had a chance to join in or, or the eights hadn't had a chance to join in. And they just yeah. were at a numerical disadvantage almost every time on some of those breakaways that Germany had numbers there, at least maybe a plus one or a plus two advantage in, in sequences where maybe it wasn't off of a straight up Germany high press. Cause in those moments, they'll actually go player for player in some of those sequences. So I, I don't know. I could understand some of the, the hope behind changing up the number nine spot, but very clearly it didn't have that much of an impact on this game. And I don't know that it was the right call either because of how dangerous Diani can be on that right side in the right half space driving in, in between players and behind the back line. In, in terms of how they handled the, the German press, I, I actually thought they handled it better than most teams I've seen at this tournament. There, there have been some opponents who have just crumbled when facing a, a German player closing them down within a second or two. But I didn't feel France did that. They, they, they were actually pretty effective at evading the first German presser that was closing down. They have players like Diani, who we've already mentioned, Cascarino and Grace Gioro. They're very press resistant and they can drop a shoulder and change direction very quickly or just or just dribble past them. But the, the problem for France was the second and the third German presser that would back up the first pressure, presser. It was just too much. And you, you would think you, you would have scenarios where uh, France would beat the first presser and, and you'd think they're away, they're on their bike and we've seen France do that repeatedly in this tournament where they, they burst into space and they're into, into moments of quick transition but there was just too much for them to do when Germany were sending twos and threes their, their way and that's maybe where having a number nine like Katoto where you do have that option just to flip a, flip a pass, flip, flip a, a, a chipped ball into her, she holds up the play that might have helped. I, th- I felt without Katoto, France in this tournament lacked a little bit of purpose. I like a lot of what Mallard brought to the table in terms of the speed and directness. But against a, a team like Germany, where you're you're going to have to play through them rather than really getting players in behind, they did lack someone like Katoto. And you, d- you do wonder if she'd been in this game. This was a tight game. There wasn't much in between the two teams, even though we're kind of picking France apart a little bit here. These are two high-quality teams. So having someone like Katoto in, in, in that number nine slot as she started the tournament... That might have made the difference for France. So that's it's think, a bit of a regret for them that, that that happened with that injury. I think it definitely does, Graham. Because even just from a like looking at this starting eleven for a moment, if Kosoto does start and let's say she kind of runs Germany ragged, maybe it's one to one and she comes off. Now you're bringing on Malar to to kind of do what she was doing when she started this game. And as much as I enjoyed Bacha when she comes on, I think she works where you have maybe more license to attack and a little bit more freedom. But when you're playing a, a German team, a very good German team, who now have the lead, that was where I, I I thought things started to wobble a little bit. And she, I think it's even before Pop scores the go-ahead goal, there's that one where uh, Basha takes the corner and it's sort of headed clear. And then she runs through from like the corner of the 18 and tries to have that kind of half volley that she almost puts out for a throw-in. And I like the enthusiasm there in that moment when it's one-to-one, but at the same time, when you're then chasing a game or you're trying to make something happen and you start to get that individuality, and there's the other one where Gianni maybe could have squared to Gayoro. I understand why she doesn't. I understand why she shoots, but there are those moments where it starts to feel 
more like desperation than it does team play. And I wonder if Katoto having that chemistry and a little bit of the camaraderie with the team would have made that difference. And I think that was the difference for Germany is they just kind of never relented. They kept going. They kept fighting. Even the, the, the go ahead goal, the winning goal, I should say, is what they're like fourth bite at the apple in 10 seconds. They end up uh, taking it and it's pop being excellent. I have more to say about her. Uh, but I think that was sort of the difference for me is there was a collective spirit there from Germany as the game went on. And for France, it really felt like it became more about individuality. I want to hear this more about Pop Tater because uh, yeah. she's she's something else. She is. And Joe's already outlined at why that was such an impressive header, uh, how high she gets, how she's able to meet it. But for me, it's also her awareness because, as I said, there's another kind of scramble in the box. I think she gets knocked over in the lead up to this one. She hops back up. And if you're watching her, you'll see her kind of be frustrated that she, that the chance is gone and then realizes, oh no, the ball's out wide. There's going to be a cross come in. And uh, Mbok Pati is on her, is making physical contact with Pop. And this is where Pop checks away. She moves towards like the penalty spot, basically. And that does a couple different things. It means you don't, she doesn't have the defender making that immediate contact. So she's way more difficult to track. But also at that point, she she's alive to the opportunity faster than I think everyone else, certainly more so than most of her teammates. Because by the time she has made that sort of check away run towards the penalty spot, other German players have now moved in, have picked themselves up. Now they're standing at the six. And that's where all the French defenders are so focused on that more immediate threat that Pop is basically unmarked and is then able to attack the space that literally she just left. If she had just stood there, maybe she ends up winning the header, but it's a, it's a stationary jump. She has the center back right on her that whole way, but it's basically the spot that she heads the ball is where she was standing. She moves away six yards and then she's able to attack that ball with nobody kind of preventing her from making a play on it. I don't think anyone sees her coming and she buries that header. It is a lovely goal but also showcases sort of so many different things that uh, Alexandra Pop brings to this German team. Uh, good luck to England dealing with that. Yeah, yeah. Millie Bright versus Pop is going to be uh, yeah. interesting, shall we say? <laughs> that is going to, and particularly when when defending crosses, because Millie Bright is very good at defending crosses, and Alexandra Pop is very good at attacking yep. crosses. So yes, I'm I am looking forward to that. Um, a BBC broadcast, Alex Scott, whom we know, um, who we see regularly on the CBS Champions League broadcast, bantering with uh, Peter Schmeichel. Uh, she said at full time of this one, Germany are so efficient in everything they do, which is almost trite to say about anything German. It seems it's pretty stereotypical. But um, Joe, I think if, if memory serves, yourself and Tater expected France to go through this one with your predictions. And we've talked about the difference makers, but were you surprised by Germany? Were you surprised by that press? I mean, I thought it was... As Graham said, it was absolutely relentless. I, I think it's the most impressive press I've seen at this tournament so far. I certainly wasn't surprised by the press just because I think that's been a hallmark of this German team and they, they've pressed really well throughout this competition. I was a little bit surprised at how how underwhelming I thought France were in this tournament. I think I, I pretty much overestimated them coming into this semifinal game. I think they, they looked flawed and they looked a little light on ideas when coming up against the German press, which which felt like... I don't know, it's it's not criminal, but it is certainly underwhelming when you know what's coming at you from Germany. They pressed in a pretty similar way, trying to deny the midfield. So, I mean, I, I leave this game, Ryan, coming in and looking at it from the other side, it, it, continuing to be more and more impressed with Germany and how good they are. We, we heaped a lot of praise on England. I think Germany probably had the harder semifinal game of the two. Maybe there's some debate there, but 
I think Germany very much has a chance in this final, and I'm I'm really excited for this game over the weekend. Yeah, as uh, Larry David famously said in Kobe Enthusiasm when stroking a German shepherd, it's nice to be affectionate to something German. Um, so we can do more of that as we take a break. And after we come back, England versus Germany. Let's get some talking points from that one back shortly. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer, if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. Let's talk about the final this Sunday at Wembley Stadium. A sold-out Wembley Stadium at 12 Eastern, this game taking place. Simultaneously, is my understanding, with a community shield, uh, Manchester City versus Liverpool. Well done, FA, for scheduling that at exactly the same time. That one taking place in Leicester. I don't know why they couldn't have done that earlier in the day. That's another conversation. But um, this one, Graham, a massive, massive test for England, taking on the eight-time winners, of course. These two teams have both got very similar form. Both conceded one goal in the tournament so far. Both have a contender tied for the golden boot. Both probably expecting to win this game as well, Graham. This, for me, the, the tournament has been building to this match for, for pretty much since the, the first match day, when, as I think I said in the last podcast, once once uh, Germany beat Spain and we kind of knew who was going to top Group B, you could plot out the knockout rounds. And to me and a lot of others, it really felt like it was kind of destiny that England and Germany were going to meet in, in this final. I think they are the best two teams um, that we've seen at this tournament. And I, ex- I expect it will be an energetic frantic match and an entertaining match i am expecting an entertaining entertaining match i'm I'm more interested in how england are going to approach it because they are a well-rounded team and we've seen serena Wiegmann set them up with a slightly different focus in each match even if the lineup has been the same as i said four of the the five lineups she's picked have been the same but there has been a little bit of toggling between the approach they used against Spain to then this the Sweden game the Norway game it's there she has changed things in, in terms of that approach and Germany will ask questions of them that they've that haven't been asked of them I know they've placed uh, played high press teams particularly Spain I think Germany are are on another level to Spain in terms of of their pressing at this tournament it's absolutely relentless Germany on the other hand, um, we kind of know what they're going to do at this point. As I say, it's going to come down to whether England can match Germany's intensity and, and th- that high press because France couldn't and all the other teams that Germany have played at this tournament couldn't. And you mentioned the, the defensive record that they have there. They do have a strong defence. I think Marina Hegering has been one of the players of the tournament. I think uh, Oberdorf, Lena Oberdorf, has also been one of the, the players of the tournament. Obviously, she plays in central midfield, but a, a large part of her job is breaking up opposition moves. 
I think that defence, though, that defensive record is a sign of just how proactive and effective Germany have been off the ball. That's what it's an illustration of. So I, I think it's down to England to work out Germany rather than Germany working out England. Um, although, obviously, there will be a bit on, on both sides. And as I say, the, the, the Millie Bright-Pop individual battle is going to be really interesting. I think the midfield battle between Oberdorf and Kira Walsh is going to be really interesting. Germany like to play in the wide areas. That's something that the, the England defence will need to watch for, is that Germany like to overload those wide areas. And um, England have been susceptible in those in those fullback positions. Rachel Daly and Lucy Bronze are both very good going forward, but can be vulnerable defensively. So that's something they will need to watch out for. So but, but in, in both terms of the team battle the, between the two teams and also individuals i think this is a fitting finale for this this Ryan, tournament may i ask may I ask graham and joe a question i don't want to step on your toes here i know this is your your this is your domain sounds like you're doing it taylor <laughs> um graham you you kind of answered it there by saying that england would probably need to adjust more to what germany were doing but i would love to know for graham and joe if these two teams were meeting like, basically, if, if the rest of the tournament had been played in a vacuum and we had been able to watch all of England's game and all of Germany's games, but they had not seen each other. So they played each other basically with the tactics that we've seen so far. Do, do Are you saying like that Germany would be the favorite there based on what you've seen? Or do you feel like it would be a bit more yeah. balanced or maybe England have the advantage? In this, in this very specific yeah. hypothetical scenario, um, I think Germany are the favourites because you look at that that first England game that they played against Austria, where Austria uh, pressed high, and I don't think England did particularly well in periods of that match. So the, just the relentlessness of that Germany press, I think would start. I think England might be caught cold by that. But fortunately for them, they have been able yeah. to watch the rest of Germany's games, so they might have fair warning on that, and they and Sunil Wiegmann might have a plan for that. And I, I think, Taylor, to answer your question, I think this is a pretty even match. I, I think there's a lot of reasons to back both teams in this game, so many so that, that maybe it cancels out. I do hear your point, Graham, about England struggling at times against Austria's press. That is going to be a really big feature of this game. I'm curious to see how well England deals with with Germany's press. It's not going to be all out all the time from Germany. It wasn't all out all the time against France for the Germans. But I think there will be moments that Germany steps up to press, and that can prevent real challenge. That can present, excuse me, real challenges for England in that they they might cough up the ball in bad spots and, and lose second balls and, and suffer turnovers. And and we saw bits and pieces of that against Sweden in the first 20, 30 minutes. Or it could present them with opportunities. I alluded to this earlier, and I've talked about this on previous shows. But with how aggressive Germany are, they're banking on on you basically not being able to deal with their pressure. They're, they're banking on going at times player for player. Almost, it's not this extreme and it's not it's not player to player marking, but think Mateus Almeida, Marcelo Bielsa style, where it's just 1v1, 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 1v1. Germany do something like that. There's, there's shades of that in how they press. Well, they're, pl- they're pressing player for player in the attacking third, which then leaves them pretty even in the back. And for England, if they can make it through that pressure and go 1v1 with Beth Mead, go 1v1 with uh, Russo off the bench, go 1v1 with... I mean, there's so many different options they have. If they can bypass the first couple of lines of pressure from Germany... I, I back them in this game. If they can do that consistently, having players like the wingers they do and the eights they do making runs off of those players, 
there's so much promise. And I, I think that will be a key matchup here. Taylor, I, I don't know that that really answers your question, but I, I think both teams will do things that frustrate the other. This is an obvious thing to say, and both teams will be frustrated by the other because of how they play. It's not exactly the same. I think my question's been answered. I appreciate it. Yeah, I think it has. Uh, Joe, I, I heartily agree with your assertion this is a very even matchup to the extent that I see this as nil nil after 120 and the eventual Germans winning the penalties. Can you give me a scenario where that doesn't happen? Yeah, I mean, that, that doesn't happen if if we see some sort of game-breaking play early on, and that can come from a few different avenues, right? That can come from England carving their way through Germany's press, which I do think they're capable of doing on a good day. And this weekend, Sunday, might just be a good day for them. And you also can flip the script here and think, okay, Germany has quality on the ball. Oberdorf is insanely good in central midfield. She eats up plays defensively, and she can start transition attacks for Germany because of how dominant she is in central midfield. If she's winning the ball and and spraying some passes forward, which she can do, but even just winning the ball and letting... Uh, her, her central midfield teammates carry it forward or, or passing it off to a fullback and letting them progress. Germany can be dangerous in possession and on the break as well. If it's McGull finding little gaps on either side of, of England's midfield, if it's Pop finding gaps in the attack, I mean, she can be a real outlet for Germany, both in possession and also a, a receiver for crosses inside the box. So if England play their way through Germany, which I do think is possible, I think the game's going to look different than that 120-minute stalemate that you described. And if Germany have some time to move the ball around and some opportunities to find Mogol or to play through Oberdorf or to get the ball out wide to then cross it into Pop, I think they could very easily go ahead in this game early and change the script. So I, yeah, like I said earlier, I'm stoked for this game. I think there's so many different ways it could go, and I'm really hoping that we end up with something other than that 120-minute penalty stalemate you described, Ryan. Yeah, I hope we avoid that too. Uh, Taylor, your thoughts on that one or any other key um, areas where this game is won and lost key players? What do you think is going to go down? Any reason why I'm not going to be crying at the end I mean, of this game? I think game? with... with- how intense I think this game is going to be, I do think we'll get a goal in the first half. So even if it does end up going to penalties, I think we'll get some goals along the way. Maybe that's wishful thinking. Uh, A player that I would like to spotlight, if I were allowed to pick one player from this tournament to then join the U.S. women's national team and make them better, it would be Lena Oberdorf. I think she could come in and do that number six job on the defensive side, but her passing range is just incredible. And there were so many moments against France where she made really simple little lateral or outlet passes that were quick, but then just because they were so quick and so simple, they opened up like a whole side of the pitch. But then there's also moments when she splits three and four defenders to play balls out wide, but to play narrow passes through. So like you have people running in on goal. And I just think she is going to be a fundamental feature of this German team, much as I wish that she could be a fundamental feature of the U.S. team. But I think how you play her is really challenging because she has so much ability on the the attacking side and the defensive side, certainly on the possession side too. So I think Lena Oberdorf will also be a key figure for Germany in this one. There was one pass in particular that Oberdorf played in that France match where she kind of had her, she takes the ball in, she holds it up for a second, she has uh, uh, maybe even two French players at her back and then she turns and she plays this left foot pass out to, it might have been Huth on, on, on the left yeah. side. And immediately, it's very clear she's taken about five French players completely out of the game, and Germany now are in are in quick transition, running towards the the French goal. And I think that just summed up what she can she can do 
on the ball because there's been a lot of focus on what she does off the ball for for obvious reasons. She's very good at that, and she's she is uh, she embodies kind of the the German high press and closing down players very quickly. But on the ball as well, she's so good at starting those German attacks from deep. I do worry she her versus Kira Walsh would kind of be would be one of the individual um, battles in this match that I think will decide the game. And, and I would side, side on Oberdorf, maybe winning that one. I, I prefer her to, to Kira Walsh. I also think the the bright Alexandra Pop one is also going to be very interesting and in whether Germany can create the space for, for Pop because that was something they did very effectively against France. The first goal, there's all sorts of movement where Pop is actually on the French right back. Uh, Karshwi, I think it was, on that side. And that kind of creates some confusion and then Huth drags Wendy Renard over to the left side and Renard doesn't really know where to, whether to go with her or stay and in the end she does neither and that allows Huth to get the ball into Pop. So England are going to need to be wary of a lot of that movement as well from that from that German front line. One little moment from uh, Svenja Huth that made me like her all the more. I think she's been exceptional for Germany too. Uh, she has one in the 23rd minute where she gets the ball sort of central. She goes on a nice technical dribbling run where she keeps the ball close even under pressure she gets through a couple French players and then Wendy Renard comes across and just absolutely hip checks her wins the ball cleanly but Huth goes like probably five yards flying that's how like much she has is checked and I think a minute later uh the ball goes into the feet of Huth Wendy Renard goes to close her down and she just one touches it away and I know that that was probably just like a decision she would have made anyway but in the moment it's hard not to see that. It's like, nah, I don't want any of that right now. I'm just going to play really simple. I don't need any challenges from Wendy Renard. But when you're adjusting your game so that you don't have to get thrown five yards by a giant center back, I think that shows at least a little bit of intelligence. So I also think Svenja Huth uh, could be pretty important in this game. Taylor, to jump back to Oberdorf, I'm with you there as, as a key player for sure. And I know it's a little reductive to compare to the men's game, but... I was trying to look at her qualities. It's, it's kind of part Fernandinho and part Jorginho, Ooh. I was thinking, because, you know, blo- blo- not not scared to do some yellow cardish challenges, but also Mixed with, with the yeah. and the move forward. Is that I, fair I, to I say? agree with what Joe just said. <laughs> it's Fernandinho, Jorginho with Julia, it's on top. Yes. <laughs> then you get the physicality uh, <laughs> part of that one. I think Joe's edition makes it a perfect analogy, yeah. There you go. Okay. Uh, anything more to say on this before I go around the houses for, for predictions, Taylor? Uh, uh, Joe, I would part. like to yield my prediction time to Joe, since I know he has multiple ones. <laughs> <laughs> Boo. <laughs> Boo. Go on then, Joe. How's it going to go? 2-1 England. No extra time. Home field advantage doing the, doing the little extra mile there for England. Me likey. Graham, do you agree? Uh, uh, this is the toughest one to call the whole tournament so I think Taylor and I found the France-Netherlands game very difficult to call I found the the semi-final between Germany and France very difficult to call this one is a whole new level though because as a tactical unit I personally think Germany are are stronger and as I say I go through some of the individual battles and I fancy fancy them to win a lot of them as well so Oberdorf on Walsh Huth on Bronze Pop on Bright Hegering on uh, Ellen White I'd be concerned about those wide areas if I was England. And yet, despite all this, the intangible stuff around this match makes me think that England will win it. And also, they're they're a very good team as well. They have Serena Wiegmann. I think she's very good at responding in match to adversity, making changes. So I'm going to stick with England. I predicted them pre-tournament. So I'll stick with that and just close my eyes when they're lifting the trophy. Or turn the TV off. (laughs) Bless you, bless you. Um, my head says Germany on penalties after a stalemate because I've been conditioned that way. But my heart says uh, a Russo winner 
in extra Back time. Gert, Gertz are in 2014 style. That's what I'm going for. Tater, how about you? Uh, I'll say 3-1 England. There you go. Uh, I think I think the the thing that suddenly stands out for me is that Germany, it was a very specific way Ian Dark phrased this one. They're the only team to not concede a goal in this tournament to an opposition player. I think England have conceded one goal, Germany have conceded one, but obviously it was an own goal very technically speaking, that is not what stands out to me. What stands out to me is that England went down to Spain and then were able to, to fight back. Germany haven't really had that challenge, that obstacle to, to truly endure in my mind. And so I think it gives England just a little bit more experience in that moment. And what I could see happening is maybe England score, maybe Germany equalize, then England get one more. And then similar to the Sweden game, Germany sort of have to open up, have to really go for it. And that allows England to get that one sort of insurance goal late. So I'll say three to one England and therefore congratulations to Germany for their two nil win. (laughs) (laughs) You you know what, Taylor? I went to the 2013 Champions League final at Wembley Stadium between Dortmund and, and Bayern. And at the conclusion of the game the Bayern fans sang three lines it's coming home it's coming home football's coming home in English so I can't handle that again happening because it's happened more than once I cannot handle that happening again so I hope it doesn't and I'm going to come out of running retirement I've decided on Sunday morning I'm going to blast out the uh the Apple music I'm going to get that three lines on and I'm going to get myself pumped up and that's going to do it for the Lionesses so um what if that's the curse I mean that didn't work for the men's Euros does it yes get him rattled get him rattled Just let him do it, Graham. But it might not be the curse. <laughs> so maybe do it halfway. Play it halfway, blast it in one earbud, and then go for a light jog instead of a full jog. Just hop on your good leg only, yeah. right? I think exactly. that's actually how you want to go about it. Or just this. lie yeah. on the floor like Joe does watching <laughs> yeah. soccer. Yeah, do that. <laughs> the optimal position for watching soccer. Yeah. I, w- I only wish I had one good leg, Joe, frankly. They're both ah. pretty... Uh bad these days listeners i want to give listeners a quick insight into we we do a little bit of planning the week ahead uh for the the week to come and i'm now realizing that ryan has claimed editing responsibility on monday and i feel like that is to preempt (laughs) someone from putting it's coming home into the introduction when germany win (laughs) snip 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 yes it's coming all right if germany win yay (laughs) i like that more (laughs) Oh, goodness me. Sunday night could be tough for many reasons. Anywho, England Germany coming up on Sunday, 12 Eastern, as I say. Make sure you check it out. We'll be talking about it on Monday and much more. But for now, Taylor Rockwell, thank you so much for your analysis. Thank you guys so much. And I have not yet listened to the Lister Question Show, in which Joe apparently admits to laying down all the time. So I look forward to that one. Uh, I enjoyed this one immensely. Thank you all. Oh, it is wild. Also, I gave out your home address at the end, Taylor. Oh I hope you don't mind. Oh, boy. And that's good, because I'm not well, sure so. I know our new one. So I'm glad that you did, so at least somebody knows it. Yeah, that's right, Joe. Uh, uh, your, your social and uh, list of your fears also. So um, be prepared for that. Joe Lowry, thank you very much. Thank you, Ryan. Good luck over the weekend. Appreciate it, bud. Graham Rusman, thank you, sir. I hope that uh, Germany shirt is crisp <laughs> and laid out on your bed right now. It's ready to go. Good luck for Sunday, Ryan. I definitely don't have my fingers crossed behind my back while I'm saying that. (laughs) Thank you very much. And thank you, listener. We'll be back on the feed. But for now, bye. Bye.